Good morning once again. We're in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus talks about the authentic Christian life when it comes to praying. Now just mentioning the word prayer usually elicits some kind of a negative response. Not always, but so often people hear the word and they'll say something like, "Uh uh-oh, I know I need help in that area. I know I do. And so there's sort of a guilt. Sometimes the response is, well, I know I should pray, but it's a boring thing to do for some people. It's been estimated that 57% of Americans pray, and they pray regularly. And that sounds exciting on the surface. But not everybody prays for the same reasons. Not everyone prays for the right reasons. For instance, sometimes people do it purely out of programming. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's something we learn to do. We do it from an early age onward. It is easy to memorize certain prayers, and in memorizing them, turning off our brains, turning on our mouths, and letting the hose run. And when you pray that way, you can do a number of other activities and not really concentrate on prayer itself. Heard about a little kid who got some of his poems confused, including a prayer, and so he prayed, Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and if he hollers, let him go, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Some wires got crossed in the programming, but he was praying out of program. Then it's possible to pray out of guilt. I know I should pray more, my prayer life isn't what it ought to be, And guilt is a powerful motivator. That's why lots of preachers like to use it. Because you can get people to do stuff if you turn on the guilt. You could say, while I was praying for you this week for 12 hours, on my knees, hoping that you would pray as well. People hear that and they go, man, I feel so bad. Look at that guy's prayer life. And guilt and fear can especially be a powerful motivator In a time of crisis, we know our life isn't what it ought to be. And now that we're in a crisis and God has our attention, our prayers are fueled. On and after September 11th, 2001. On and after both invasions in the Gulf Wars of the last several years. Our country immediately turned to prayer. There were prayer vigils everywhere. Churches were packed. It was a time of crisis, a time of fear. I remember working down in um, New York City in Manhattan at Ground Zero for two weeks after the towers fell, and I could literally go to anyone on the street, anyone, and say, let's pray. And they would say, yes, please. I know we should be praying more as a country. Try that today. You're not going to get the same kind of response that you did back then. See, for a lot of people, prayer is like a a spare tire. You don't think about the spare tire until you get a flat. Then when you have a flat, you think, and I hope that baby's pumped up because I need it right now. Like the pilot who radioed to the tower and he said, pilot to tower, pilot to tower. I'm 300 miles from land, 600 feet high, and I'm running out of fuel. Please advise. After a short pause... Tower to pilot, tower to pilot, repeat after me. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You need prayer right now, buddy boy. Fear. Guilt. Still, others will pray out of a sense of selfishness. For others, they regard prayer as, um, it's like the ultimate room service. Going to a hotel is great. Room service. You get on the phone, and anything you want, you just ask for it. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, milkshake, your laundry done, car brought around. It's great. And some people see God that way. He's like the ultimate bellhop. All you have to do is name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. It's yours. You're a king's kid. Hallelujah. You just sort of fill in the blank and no tipping is necessary. But this is the way I feel. We can't pray, thy kingdom come, until we first learn how to pray, my kingdom go. And that's what we're going to learn about here in today's study and in the next couple weeks. The authentic Christian when it comes to talking with God. And what Jesus tells us in these verses is the worst way to pray and then the best way to pray. The worst way to pray, like a hypocrite, like a heathen. The best way to pray, privately. The best way to pray, relationally and expectantly. Let's look at these verses. Verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. The worst way to pray, according to Jesus, is to pray like a hypocrite. Now, isn't it interesting, according to verse 5, Jesus said hypocrites love to pray. I find that very striking. Hypocrites love to pray. They love to pray, Jesus said, standing in the synagogues or on the corners of the streets. Now, it's not that they love prayer, and it's not that they love God, but they love the show. It's all about being noticed by people. There is no boundary that sin or Satan will not invade. Even the holiest of holies. Satan and sin will follow us even into God's throne. By the time of the New Testament... Prayer among the religious people in Israel had deteriorated to a very low degree. Let me explain. Number one, prayers had become formalized, memorized, and formalized. Sort of like, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. A couple of prayers that were memorized, one was called the Shema. It was prayed by pious Jews twice daily. Shema Israel, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a couple of excerpts from Deuteronomy and Numbers, and they were put together, and it was a beautiful affirmation of faith that was memorized, recited. Another prayer was called the Shimon Esrei, or the 18 prayers 
that were given on special occasions, but some very pious would say them three times a day. Twice a day, some did it three times a day. When you pray this way, formalized and memorized, it's easy to not put your mind or your heart into it. It's degenerated. Number two, there were set times and places. It was um, thought that if you prayed in the third hour and in the sixth hour and in the ninth hour or nine o'clock in the morning, 12 noon and three in the afternoon, that's the best way to approach life. So no matter what you were doing, no matter where you were, if you were in the field working, if you were at home with your family, if you were uh, traveling, you'd stop during those times. You'd face Jerusalem and you'd pray. Then, though you could pray anywhere, the best place to pray was Jerusalem. And the best place to pray in Jerusalem was the temple. Yes, God is God and he'll hear every prayer of any uh, heartfelt, pious person they thought anywhere on the earth. The real place to pray is in Jerusalem. That's why they made it mandatory three times a year for you to show up in Jerusalem if you lived around the environs of Jerusalem. You can still see it today. You'll go to Israel and you'll see thousands of Jewish men and women standing in front of these huge stones at the western wall of the Temple Mount. It's the retaining wall where their temple once stood. It's as close as they could get to the Holy of Holies. I talk to my tour guide about this, and every year he says, Well, you know, God will answer prayers anywhere, but here it's a local call, you see. God especially will hear prayers in Jerusalem. So formalized, set times and places. And number three, there were prescribed prayers. Prayers when the sun was rising, prayer when the sun was setting for light, for darkness. There was prayer for rain, prayer for the new moon, prayer for the Sabbath, prayer for special traveling mercies. And the idea originally was good. The idea was let's bring all of life, everything I do, into the very presence of God. I want him to be a part of every aspect. However, as good as it started out to be over time, it degenerated. Fourth aspect of those ancient prayers, they believe that length equals effectiveness. That if I bang long enough and hard enough at heaven's door, God has to hear. If I bug him enough, and if I use the right kind of language, the flowery, the more flowery, the better. I found one ancient Jewish prayer that had 19 adjectives before the name of God. Something like, oh, holy, magnificent, omnipotent, gracious, loving. Nineteen of those stretched out before the name of God. That, they thought, was most effective. Now, here's where the hypocrisy comes in. Notice, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. That's where the hypocrisy enters. Nothing wrong with praying in the synagogue. What is praying is that you do it in such a way so that others notice your intensity and now the focus is not on the one you're praying to but the one offering the prayer. They love to get the attention by standing and being seen. And then Jesus says they love to pray on the corners of the streets, which, by the way, refers to a major intersection where crowds were most likely to gather. So they time it. 
depending on the foot traffic in Jerusalem, ooh, the crowds are coming. It's almost lunchtime. They'd get out there with their robes and they'd paint their faces and they'd have their hands stretched toward heaven so people walking by would go, yeah, those are pious dudes. I need to really get my prayer life in order. Ooh, they're so holy. It'd be like some of us standing maybe on PCH around lunchtime or at the Irvine Y, standing right up there at the intersection, hands raised and we're giving glory to God. Why would you do it there to be seen by people? It is possible to pray and not even pray to God. Did you know that? It's possible to utter a prayer, but you're thinking more of how you sound to yourself or how you sound to others. You're really praying to them rather than to God. Jesus made note of this. In Luke chapter 18, he said, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And he said, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he probably paused and said, that sounds good. I'm not doing this and doing that. I'm not even like this tax collector. Yeah, that sounds really... He was praying to himself. Sometimes people will even develop, you may have noticed, a prayer voice. It's, it's a vocal pattern that they wouldn't utter in a normal conversation. But somehow when you pray, it's turned on. Oh, God. Okay. Um, let me ask you a question. Why don't you talk like that to your family? Oh, honey, it's good to be home. Because she'd think you're goofy, that's why. Just talk normally to God. But it can be that it's really not to the Lord. R.A. Torrey once said, We should never utter one syllable of prayer, either in public or in private, until we are definitely conscious that we are coming into the presence of God and are actually praying to him. We need to remember that when we join hands with another believer, whether a friend or in a small group, and we're going to pray, it's for him. It's to him. Lyndon Johnson, when he was president of the United States, had an assistant over for dinner one evening, and the assistant was asked to pray for the meal and And so he did, but it wasn't loud enough that the president could hear. And so Lyndon Johnson interrupted his assistant and said, Speak louder, Bill. Speak up. And his assistant turned to the president and said, Excuse me, Mr. President, but I wasn't talking to you. He got it right. I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to him. I remember one time receiving a letter Some years ago, it was a complaint about some style of worship that we had on a Sunday. And as I read the complaint, I couldn't help but say, excuse me, but we weren't singing to you. This isn't about you. It's about him. Sometimes we forget that when we pray, when we worship. So the worst way to pray, the hypocrite way. Also, number two, to pray like a heathen. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Hypocrites pray to be noticed by men. Heathen pray to be noticed by God. They do it in such a way as to attract the attention of the gods. 
Again, to me, this is interesting. Not only do hypocrites pray, heathen pray. Heathen pray. They may never pray until there's a time of crisis, but in a crisis, they will. This is from Omni Magazine, which states, after a poll was taken, the ritual of prayer can even be found in substantial amounts among agnostics and atheists. 14% of those with no religion pray every day, as do another 60% of those with an alternative religious belief. About 38% of those who deny a belief in life after death pray daily, along with another 41% of those who have serious doubts about life beyond the grave. So I read that and I go, all right, so who do they pray to? If they don't believe in God, what is it? Dear to whom it may concern. What is it they're praying to? Yet many do pray. The heathen pray as well as the hypocrites. What Jesus was referring to was the ancient pagan rituals where there were uh, loud sounds repeated phrases and words, sort of like mantras shouted over and over again. And the thought here is idle, meaningless chatter. The Phillips translation puts it this way. Don't rattle off long prayers. Don't rattle them off. Just stuffing in phrases that you've heard that are overused. Don't rattle off long prayers. When Elijah was on Mount Carmel... It's a good illustration of this. Here he was on top of a mountain. There were prophets of Baal. They were praying all day long, and he came at the end of the day, uttered a few words, and God answered. Listen to the account. First Kings 18. They prayed to Baal from morning until noon, shouting, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound, and no one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had built. Now imagine in your mind the scene. Hour after hour, after hour, after hour. Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. On and on and on. Repeated phrase after phrase. Trying to talk the gods into answering by their repeated phrase in words. Heard about a little boy in church praying fervently, and while he was praying, every now and then the pastor heard him pray, Tokyo, 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 Tokyo. After church, the pastor said, Son, you look like you were praying so fervently, but why did you keep saying Tokyo, 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 Tokyo? He said, Well, I just took my geography test, and I've been praying for the Lord to make Tokyo the capital of France. <laughs> Got the answer wrong. He thought, Fervent prayer over and over again would help. Prayer is not talking God into something. It's not trying to pull one over on him. It's not trying to do a con job or a sales pitch. And if you were to actually compare the prayer in 1 Kings 18 that the pagans prayed and the prayer that Elijah prayed, you'd discover something interesting. The pagans did it all day long, repeated phrase after phrase, Elijah comes at the end of the day, and I counted how many words were in his prayer. There were 51. All day long, 51 words, and they were answered. Or another example. 
The Pharisee and the tax collector that went into the temple to pray. The Pharisee prayed with himself. He prayed, I counted them, 33 words. The tax collector comes, prays seven words. Doesn't even lift his eyes up toward heaven, but he says, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said he went down to his house justified. Martin Luther said, The fewer the words, the better the prayer. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not trying to talk you into a short prayer life. I'm not trying to say, now look, folks, all prayer is is shooting up a fast one every now and then. That's prayer. No, because Jesus spent all night in prayer to God. What I am saying is length doesn't always equal effectiveness. James said concerning Elijah, it's the fervent effective prayer of a righteous man that avails much. It's from his heart and his life is a righteous life. I can give you a good example of that and that's Peter, the Apostle Peter. You know the story. He was walking on the water and then he started discovering that, wait a minute, this is impossible. Water can't adequately displace the weight of a man standing upright, whatever was going through his mind. He started drowning. At that point, he didn't have time for long, flowery prayers. Imagine Peter drowning and he starts saying, Oh, holy, gracious, omnipotent, he'd have been dead. I bet his prayer was something like, well, the Bible says, Save me, help. It worked. It was from his heart. It was fervent. It is so easy to get into a rut in our prayer life to insert worn-out prayers and to take away spontaneity from our relationship with the Lord. And I'll tell you what will help. Find a brand-new believer, someone who just has come to Christ, and pray with that person. They might feel a little skittish at first, but you see what's great about it is they haven't learned how to do it yet. They don't know all those golden oratorical phrases. They just pray from their heart. It's so refreshing. I was in New York City. I was doing a conference once, and afterwards I prayed with a brand-new street kid, New York believer, and seriously, his prayer was something like, Yo, Lord, you got to help me. I'm in a mess. I thought, I like that, and I bet God loves that. John Bunyan once said, in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Let's look at the best way to pray now. Verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In verse 8, therefore, do not be like them, that is the heathen and the hypocrites, for your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. Here's the best way to pray. Privately, expectantly, relationally. First of all, privately. Jesus talks about here the secret place. He's he's certainly not talking against corporate prayer. He's not saying, never pray publicly, never pray in a group. After all, Jesus did it. He prayed in the midst of his disciples. John 17 is his own personal recorded prayer that his disciples overheard and wrote down. On another occasion, Jesus took the loaves and the fishes and broke them, and he publicly gave thanks. So he 
prayed publicly in front of people. But here's the thought. Public worship should flow out of private worship. Our own private lives in the secret place with God, when it comes to overflow as we gather together in public, that's authentic. Public worship should flow or be the outflow of private worship. I will submit to you that if your public worship experience is somehow shallow, that it's not the fault of the worship group, it's the fault of something in your own private prayer life. Because public worship is simply the outflow of private worship. Now, why is the secret place so important? A secret place is important because when your heart is quiet and alone, you're vulnerable and open before God only, and he can search your heart in an undisturbed manner. When the gospel first came to the continent of Africa, the new converts were taught to have devotions every day. They'd get up early, they'd leave their huts, and they'd go find their own little spot out in the forest, out in the jungle. They'd pray, they'd share, a, they'd have a scripture verse or a copy of the Bible, and they'd come back. What, what happened is the path started being worn very distinctively. Uh, they were marked. You could see it because the grass was worn off and the path was very dis- distinct. So you could always tell if somebody didn't have their devotions. Because eventually the grass would start growing up. And uh, they would remind each other if that were the case. They could tell if one was slacking off. One would say to his brother, Brother, grass is growing in your path. As if to say, I notice by your path that you're not having regular devotions. It must be, first of all, private. Second, pray expectantly. Notice that Jesus says, when you pray, verse 6, Go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And then verse 8, your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. The word room is the Greek word tameon, and it literally means a storeroom where treasure is kept. A storeroom where treasure is kept. Here's the implication. When you come in prayer, there's treasure waiting for you. Come before God expecting to find it. When you pray, do you expect God to answer you? Do you expect him to reveal his will to you? Are you coming with a faithful, filled with faith, expectant heart? You see, God said, call on me and I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things which you know not. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. I'm convinced God wants us to pray more than we want to pray. It's like here he is with his treasures saying, enter into the room, come expectantly. A woman was at an opera one evening and she left her diamond pin, her brooch somewhere. She thought she did anyway. And she called the opera house the next day and told her what she had lost. And she was very nervous. And they said, hold the line. I'll look for it. The guy on the phone left the phone, went, and he found the brooch in the opera house under one of the seats, went back to the phone to tell the good news, I found your brooch. By the time he had gotten back to the phone, she hung up. She didn't want to wait that long. She couldn't hold the line. 
He waited, thinking she'll call back. She never called back. He put an ad in the paper, thinking she'd read the ad in the paper. I found the pin. She never responded. How foolish. All she had to do was hold the line. You asked for it, now wait. Expect an answer. How often we pray like that woman who called. We fail to hold the line and see what the Lord has for us. So when you pray, the best way is privately, expectantly, and third, relationally. There's a word repeated three times in this passage. It's the word Father. Your Heavenly Father. You don't have to cajole God. You don't have to bug God. You're a child talking to His or her Heavenly Father. It doesn't say, Your Heavenly Withholder or your heavenly Scrooge, or your heavenly dictator, but your heavenly Father. Hypocrites want to be seen by men. Heathen want to be seen by the gods. But children of God come quietly, privately, expectantly, filled with faith because they have a relationship with a Father. Paul the Apostle picked up on this in Romans 8, and he writes, You have received the spirit of sonship, And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic and also Hebrew term of endearment. It's translated Daddy, Papa. It's not God way out at a distance and I'm a little man way down here, but it's Papa, Daddy, Father, like a child who would jump up on Dad's lap and have an intimate form and time of fellowship. So don't try to impress God with your prayers. You can't. God didn't go, wow, now that was good. I'm impressed. We're talking about God. He knows you. He knows me. So don't try to impress God with your prayers. Don't try to impress people with your worship. Just be a child before his or her heavenly father. That's genuine prayer. It's not out of programming. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of selfishness. It's because a relationship has been established and we're invited to come Anytime. I'll never forget the day that God became my heavenly father. I had gone to church all my life, every week. I knew about God. I knew his names. I knew his son's name. I knew places Jesus hung out as a child. I knew facts about the Bible. But I'll never forget the day I decided to make it personal, make it real, And invite, very definitely, Jesus to come in and be in charge. It was that day that something happened. Before that, I had been human being in a relationship of some kind with God. I didn't know it was a relationship of judgment and condemnation at the time, but it was. It was human being and God. Then Jesus became my Lord, my Savior, my Master. Now, it was child and father. And it was like, ah, so much better, more at ease, genuine. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as little kids would come to Dad, confident that the Father knows everything about us and is so much wiser than we ever are or will be, So we come before you 
Lord, it's so wonderful to know that when we talk to you, when we form our thoughts into words, that they can be real words. We can express our feelings the way they really are. You're not shocked by it. You've known it all along. We can pour out our very hearts to you. We dare not try to impress you because that's impossible. But you so impress us that being so majestic and so magnificent and powerful that you would allow us to be as children by adoption and for you to be a father to us. Lord, there's such an an ease about that. Not for everyone, though, because there are some here who, when they hear the term father, does not evoke a good memory because of their past. But you are the perfect father. You're the perfect parent. We can't judge you by our own past baggage or good or bad relationships because you can't be compared to anyone. You're the perfect father who is perfectly loving and receiving to his children. Lord, I don't know what each prayer represented is today for everyone who's gathered. For some, it's just an unloading of a burden that's been carried all week or the past several months, an ache in the heart. For others, Lord, there's just joy and celebration. Others, Lord, are waiting on something and expecting something from you, and I pray that that expectancy would continue and it would be expecting it from you and you alone. Lord, perhaps, though, there are some who have gathered who need to pray like the prodigal son because they've strayed from you and they now need to say, I will arise and go to my father. And say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And it was at that point that the father received that child. And some of us need, Lord, that prayer of confession. And you're waiting for us to simply in faith utter that. And so as we gather before the Lord today with our heads bowed, our eyes are closed. If that describes you, friend... You've strayed from God. You've run from Him. We're glad you're among God's people today, but maybe it hasn't been really real and personal, and you need to ask the Father to forgive you and come back home. I want you to raise your hand up. Just raise your hand up. Say, I'm going to be honest before God. Just pray for me. Lord bless you, sir. Anyone else? Just raise your hand up. God bless you and you in the back. Yes, sir. Anyone else? statement of faith right up in the front Lord it's our privilege to now pray for each one of these that Jesus would occupy the throne of each heart and be at the center of every life in Jesus name amen Jesus name amen Jesus name amen Jesus